Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. So, much the same as the books we've seen in the last couple weeks, like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. It was called the book of Ezra. And it wasn't broken in two until the Middle Ages. We had heard some of the other books were broken in two when the Septuagint was created, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures before the time of Christ. Well, this book wasn't broken in two until the Middle Ages, and this is by Christians only. Another point I want to focus on a little bit for this introduction, is though the book of Chronicles is purposely the last book of the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah offer the only record of historical events in post-exilic Judah. So what does that mean? Ezra and Nehemiah is the last of the history-like material that we get. The book that we focused on last week, that was placed last in the Hebrew Scriptures, That doesn't have the final stuff. That ends with Cyrus's decree to go back up from from exile. But this book, Ezra and Nehemiah, takes us the furthest of the Old Testament. So the book features two primary leaders. Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the governor. And it highlights three rebuildings. The rebuilding of the temple the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, and, and most importantly, the rebuilding of the Jewish community, the community of the people of God. Now, the book stresses the importance of this community of God. It stresses the importance of the written Torah. Up to this point, the people of God probably didn't have the Torah and the written Bible in the same way that they do now. And most importantly, it stresses the holiness of the temple, and not just the temple, but the whole city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is a holy, which means set-apart place. So, much like in weeks before last week, we're going to go back to our 1,000-foot, 100-foot view. So, in this, the 1,000-foot view, let's say the, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, again, focusing on as one book, it can be broken up into four parts, which you see up there. One, the progress from the release under the Persian King Cyrus to the reconstruction of the temple, and that's chapters 1 through 6. Two, the arrival of the priest Ezra and his initial reforms, and that's chapters 7 through 10 of our contemporary book of Ezra. Three, the arrival of Nehemiah, and the record of the rebuilding of the wall, and this is in Nehemiah 1 through 6, and for the reordering of the community's life under both Ezra 
and Nehemiah. So it's important to know is that those first three sections, the progress from release under Cyrus to the reconstruction of the temple, the arrival of Ezra, and the arrival of Nehemiah, they're all preparation for the climax of this book, the climax of sacred history up to this point, which occurs in the combined activity, that fourth section, under Ezra and Nehemiah. And again, that's the last six-ish chapters of the work as a whole. So what is the purpose of this book? Well, in a nutshell, it is to restore the worship of the God of Israel and to create a purified Jewish community. Some of the themes that we're going to look at as we run across the pages of this book are these. One, God's use of foreign rulers for Israel's sake. The second theme is kind of a contrasting theme to that first one, uh, and it's bitter opposition from people of the land that they're returning back to. And three, and finally, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this at the end, we see a separation of Israel from the foreigners in the land. And according to this book, it is to reflect the purity of the people of God. These people in the land were leading them to worship idols, so they were to be separated from them. That becomes a problem for Christians, right? So we're going to deal with that in a little bit of depth later. Finally, the last thing I want to know before we really dive in, note until we dive into the book is that the narrative of this book is, is highly schematic. There's a pattern that reoccurs throughout the whole stage of this restoration of the people of God. And the pattern or schema is this. God stirs up a king. The king, king of Persia, commissions a Jewish leader to undertake a task. That leader overcomes opposition, and success is marked by a great assembly. So again, we see this over and over. God stirs up a king. That king commissions a Jewish leader to perform a task in the land. That leader overcomes opposition, mostly by people, local opposition. And finally, the success is marked by a great assembly. So pay attention to that as we really dive into this, the 100-foot view. So in the first section that I talked about, that first section, the first six chapters of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we get the editor's vantage point on events that unfolded between Cyrus's decree that Israel would rebuild their temple to its actual completion. Right? How did Chronicles end last week? It ended with this decree that all would go up. And we'll see more clearly why the assemblers of the Hebrew Bible did in fact put that book last instead of this one. Because this one doesn't end on such a hopeful note. So, in chapters 1 and 2 of that first section, God rouses Cyrus's spirit to issue a written decree that the temple of Jerusalem be rebuilt by returning Jews. Cyrus first commissions the man Sheshbazar, who we see almost not at all in the rest of the book, Sheshbazar is commissioned to carry back the sacred temple vessels that were taken from Jerusalem by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus then commissions a second group of 42,000 that are led by Zerubbabel, 
who we see quite a bit in the book. And Zerubbabel is the political leader, and there may have been messianic hope and expectation around Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel goes up along with the high priest Joshua, and they go up to rebuild the temple. In chapter 3, the Levites are appointed to lead the temple rebuilding. We heard a lot about the Levites last week, right? The Levites were the ones who work in the temple. These, the Levites in the line of Aaron, they're the ones who are at the temple. So here they are, they're rebuilding it. Uh, but the news that the temple's foundation has been laid uh, spurs up enemies. This spurs up local opposition. The people who were in power in this land while Israel was in exile, they see this as a threat. And these enemies, these local enemies, they send a letter to the Persian king telling him that a rebuilt Jerusalem would become a hotbed of sedition. And this, at least initially, stops the temple rebuilding project. The king acknowledges the reply and orders the work to stop. And this is because this is not King Cyrus. This is a Persian king after Cyrus, who seems, at least according to the narrative, unaware of Cyrus's decree. So up to this point, we've seen the beginning of that scheme I mentioned just a second ago. Uh, God has stirred up Cyrus. Cyrus commissions Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And soon after, Zerubbabel faces opposition. And in this case... As in the others that we'll see, Zerubbabel is presented as someone who persists. When he's got word that he's to stop rebuilding the temple, he notes the written permission the now dead King Cyrus gave him to begin his task. And this new king, King Darius I, who stopped, initially stopped the, the rebuilding process, I guess looks for the document, confirms it, and orders the construction to, re- to continue. But not only that, he doesn't just order it to continue. Something is added to this. It's as if in response to Zerubbabel's uh, endurance, he is gifted the fact that Darius also adds that these local Samaritan people of the land, opponents, they must now facilitate the building of the temple with royal resources. So they got the exact opposite of what they wanted. They wanted this thing stopped. Now they have to contribute to it. And in the end, the project is successful. There is a public dedication, the end of that scheme. And the Passover is celebrated. So all this, the first six opening chapters, that is, sets the stage for the coming of Ezra the priest. Now, in chapter 7, Ezra is introduced as a distinguished scholar and teacher of the Torah in Babylon. And he, much like Zerubbabel, is commissioned by the Persian king to go to Jerusalem and assess Torah obedience in the land. When he arrives, he becomes immediately very distressed Many of the Jews of the land, including priests and Levites, those who are rebuilding the temple, those who are facilitating worship there, they are married to non-Jews who participate in brutal religious practices. 
And this finding for Ezra sparks an impassioned, tearful lament. The people of God have just been recipients of unmerited divine mercy after an, after an awful history of Torah obedience, and here they are. They've lapsed again. So the second section, the arrival of Ezra and his initial reforms, it ends with Ezra's attempt to remedy the situation. And his remedy to the situation is to call for the abolition of these mixed marriages, and he calls them to dedicate themselves to Adonai alone. So again, hold that in your mind. I don't really like that. But again, it's presented in the narrative as we're practicing idolatry. And that first commandment, right? No idolatry. Let that sit and then we'll like really wrestle with it toward the end. The third section of the book is the arrival of Nehemiah. And the third section records the rebuilding of of the walls of Jerusalem. So we've had the rebuilding of the temple. We've had Ezra's initial attempt at the rebuilding of the community. And here we have the rebuilding of the walls to keep these people safe, to make it a city again. And actually, the one thing I want to mention before I go on, I was thinking about mentioning this at the end, but I'll mention it now. But to problematize Ezra's reforms and even the building of the temple, when the temple is reconstruction. Reconstructed, the people there who had gone back up from exile, who knew about the first temple, the people who didn't know about the temple, they rejoiced. Here, the temple is back. But the people who are around at the destruction of the Solomonic temple, they weep and they mourn because it is not like the glory of Solomon's temple. So even at the end of that section, we're left with an ambiguous, like, okay, well, the temple's rebuilt, hooray, we've celebrated the Passover, but is it on the same level? There's almost kind of that question, are we still kind of the blessed people of God? And at the end of the second section, we also see Ezra's solution is to abolish the mixed marriages, and that solution comes about because of his reading of Deuteronomy, and it's ordered to him from the political leaders. But again, there's this kind of ambiguous note. Is this really working? And as we'll get to in future weeks, the prophets say other things. The prophets say you shouldn't get divorced. The prophets talk a whole lot about how the people of God, the God's chosen, will lead all the nations in the worship of Adonai. So we seem to have a dialectic here between what's being presented here, albeit ambiguously, and at times what the prophets say. So all I have to say is let's move to the third section of the book, the arrival of Nehemiah and the record of the rebuilding of the wall. And again, this section begins in the same way the others have, with that pattern. Nehemiah is given imperial authority and funding to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls. And soon after arriving, two local officials in that area, again, they've seen the temple created, but now they don't want Jerusalem to get strong. They oppose his mission. 
Only this time, they don't go to the king. They oppose his mission by issuing threats to the workers. And there's a few instances of that. Uh, And Nehemiah's unarmed workers are attacked by these characters, Sanballat and Tobiah. Again, the surrounding regional leaders. But Nehemiah, like Ezra, like Zerubbabel, he courageously persists. He believes that God will fight for God's people on their behalf, much like God did in the return to the land. And he is rewarded for this. Once again, the adversity is overcome. All the ploys of the opposition fail. And by chapter 8 of our, the book in our, our, our Bibles, Nehemiah, everyone is gathered together at a national assembly at which our friend Ezra, who we met you know, chapters earlier, he hops back on the scene and he reads the Torah to the crowd. Again, there's that assembly after the rebuilding of the wall. And they are presented here as united in leadership. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the religious authority. Ezra's reading of the Torah reduces the crowd to tears because they know they have not lived up to the covenant, to the law. But instead of encouraging lamenting, Nehemiah says, you know what? We haven't lived up to this. We experienced exile because of this. And despite the fact that we've been returned to the land, given all this this grace, we're still uh, sinning, so to speak. But he says, let this be a day of celebration. Let this be a day of joy. For today we start anew. Today we begin again. So in that assembly, the people confess their sins. They plead for God to take seriously their present slavery, as they put it, under the foreign kings. So, right, they're thankful for the Persian king, Cyrus, etc. But we're still not our autonomous. We're not our own leaders. They also renew the covenant. Like so many times before, they renew their commitment to God. And then finally, the book has, I must mention this, it's not very cool for the narrative, but there are lots of lists in the books. And in the book, and uh, we have a list of families selected to live in Jerusalem, namely the priests, the Levites. Uh, there's a dedicatory procession on the wall that Nehemiah built. And it ends, again, kind of the way that second section ended, with the community's exclusion of all foreigners and their gods from the assembly. But the book doesn't quite end there. There's a final chapter, chapter 13, where again, the results of the rebuilding project are brought into question. It's as if like we're fast-forwarded to a time way down the road after this assembly has taken place. And what are the people doing? They're doing what they've done time and time again. They're sinning. The Levites, particularly, are sinning around the temple. The wall, which is supposed to kind of, again, like... Jerusalem as a whole is considered holy here. And there's, kind of like in Jesus' time, the wall has been turned into like this marketplace where the true worship of Adonai is not the central thing. And it kind of ends pathetically on some level because Nehemiah says essentially, hey Lord, at least I tried. And then we're kind of 
led to an ending. So what do we make of this book? Um, I do think that there is, at least the way the canon is formed, there's a purposeful dialectic here. This book, its focus is on the purity of worship, the worship of Adonai. And we as Christians, we believe in the Ten Commandments. We believe we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that God alone. This book is really highlighting that need to worship God and God alone. But what do we do about the fact that, as we'll see in upcoming weeks, we'll see in the prophets this notion that the walls that we build to separate ourselves from one another, they are going to be cast down. This isn't even just in the New Testament. This isn't just Paul's letters or the work of Christ, right? With the, 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 the vision of the Holy of Holies is torn in two. And every Greek, Jew, all the nations are brought together. This is in the prophets they're talking about this. But here we see the wall being built. Again, there seems to be this spiritual boundary between the Israelites and all others presented here. Now, what I want to really talk about here is that while a plain sense reading of this text might encourage, like, wow, like this like, seems to be encouraging xenophobia. Um, I want to respect the, the, the mention of the, 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 the thrust of the text. This really is about proper worship of Adonai. Throughout the Old Testament, foreigners, um, people of other religions, etc., are always welcome to, uh, to, to obey the God of Israel, right? We see that. We saw that with Ruth. We, we, we haven't focused too much on those instances, but there isn't this notion of like, you, you can never come in. At the same time, this does seem to be disappointing or hard. And again, that's not just like a New Testament imposition onto the old. We see this, and we will see this in upcoming weeks as we take a closer look at the prophets. So I kind of want us to keep that in mind as we move forward. I also want to mention those allegorical ways of reading Scripture that were everywhere before the time of the Reformation. Uh, the Reformation was a correction on only allegory. There is no literal sense of the book. But that doesn't mean you can't have both. So what is an allegorical way of interpreting this text? Well, if you remember my presentation from Joshua, and I'd recommend listen to that again. I spent a whole lot more time on this in that than I will today. But again, there's this desire for freedom from the power of capital S sin. All that sin that so easily entangles, all that idolatry that may not manifest itself for you and me in bowing before an Asherah pole or something like that. 
But really, what's associated with the Asherah pole, etc., is worship of sex, worship of power. You name it. You've got something, I've got something that I worship that is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This text says that kind of worship is bad news. Staying in our sin is not good news, even though we so often can't not stay in it, or it feels that way. The power and lure of idolatry is alive and well. And though we know that our Lord's sacrifice has made us right with him despite our constant turn to idolatry. Freedom from that which kills us is good. So that is how, the other way this has been interpreted by a lot of people in the church is that Ezra and Nehemiah have been viewed as people that we can emulate. We experience adversity in our faith, We trust that God is the one who fights for us. We persist. So, I'm just going to recap all that we've said. Focusing on those three major characters. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. They do their work. We see that scheme, that pattern. But at the end of the scheme end of the pattern, at the end of their work, the text is not presented as finished. In fact, it presents it in a very ambiguous light. It presents it as if there are just as many problems as before we started. So the text itself seems to point us forward. And while Ezra and Nehemiah know nothing of Jesus of Nazareth, There is that notion of a future Davidic king who will make right what has gone wrong. And what we saw at the beginning was, it seems like Zerubbabel was the one they were hoping it would be. For whatever reason, there's no emphasis really on Nehemiah being that person. Or maybe there is a type, but a touch, but not like Zerubbabel. So, I think, particularly for Christians... And what we'll see in future weeks as we look at the prophets is, here we are, the last historical moment of the Hebrew Bible, and once again the people of God are in a mess. As the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible goes forward, there seems to be this turn from do this and you shall live to we need an intervention from outside of us, a Davidic king who will make right all that has gone wrong. And lest we want to be those who say, we need to rebuild those walls. We need, you know, no one's talking about this today, no mixed marriages. In our Lord Jesus Christ, it makes, it makes it clear that those dividing walls have been cast down. There is no more Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but we are one in Christ. So that vision of the prophets that we'll see in upcoming weeks is made manifest 
in the work of the future Davidic king that is our Lord and our Savior. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week, with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.